podcast delves into the minds of some of today's most ambitious and successful entrepreneurs. They have grown businesses that are disrupting the way we live, how and what we buy, and the way companies are run. How have the life experiences of this generation informed their success and what can we learn from them? I'm Catherine Eakers, and in this series, I'm going to be talking to five different entrepreneurs about how they took an existing market or business model and innovated it to suit changing needs, how they rolled with the punches and disrupted the status quo to reflect and even affect the world we live in today. We hear the phrase next generation a lot, but we wanted to talk to people who are facing these challenges right now. Not the next generation, but generation now. Joining me this week is Adina Glynn, a landed estate senior associate here at Forsters, who works on estates across the country. Adina acts on the purchase of vineyards and estates, gives advice on their management and ownership structures, covering everything from property issues through to the tax and trust arrangements behind the scenes. Adina, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Catherine. This week, we are talking to brother and sister team, Tamara and Simon Roberts from Ridgeview, one of the leading brands of English sparkling wine. Tamara and Simon, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Now, wine, obviously, a very always an interesting topic. And I'm sure one of those things that people are always happy to talk to you about. So interestingly, your parents established Ridgeview, didn't they? A vineyard in Sussex in 1995. Um, and I was surprised to learn that actually that was their second joint business venture. Um, how involved were you with their initial decision to set up the, the company? I don't think either of us were particularly involved, just because we, we were studying at the time and both doing completely different things. So Simon was boat building and I was up in London doing chartered accountancy and fun stuff like that. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, it was, um, I, I think it took us both a little bit by surprise. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean... Obviously, they discussed what they wanted to do, uh, what they were planning to do. And Dad, in all his endeavours, he always did a lot of research, didn't he? So even with his software and computer company, it was a great success because he put the effort in and the research in the same. So I had quite a lot of faith. Well, if that's what he wants to do, sounds a bit crazy, but I'm sure it would be good. Well, we've both been with the previous business. It started off in our lounge when we were much younger, didn't it, uh, at home. So we're just used to it. So I suppose <laughs> it's not, you know, we just think, OK. That's, that's another, just, another just idea. Off yeah. you go. <laughs> well, I don't know about you. I didn't even really drink wine back then. And um, it was quite interesting. Yeah, we, we used to drink wine at home not with a, them. Yeah. I got a phone call when I was finishing my studies asking would you be able to help out with planting the vineyard? And I sort of very begrudgingly said, well, I'll stay for the summer, but that's it, I'm going. <laughs> and then fell in love with farming and the vineyard. So I went back to college to study viticulture at Plumpton College, which is not far from us, which is the only winemaking degree. Right. Um, so for you, it happened that quickly, sort of that first summer helping plant the harvest? Yeah, I mean, I've got to drive quad bikes, drive a tractor... <laughs> chainsaw you know so what's not to enjoy <laughs> living the dream so, yeah exactly yeah so did it start quite seriously or was it really more of a hobby it was always more than a hobby i don't think if you ask them now if they envisioned ridgeview would be where it is and the size it is it is now back then but no it was definitely a professional venture wasn't it yeah definitely it's great that they supported you to go off and study it as well yeah i mean as i say it's literally is 10 minutes away so it wasn't too bad. <laughs> so I could pop back at lunchtime to like if I had to set a sprayer up or whatever. So it was, 
you know, it was only like a couple of days a week, so it wasn't too bad. Sounds pretty idyllic as a, co- a combination mm. of. It was yeah. actually. It was cool, wasn't it? It's was just like out in the countryside and just something new. I mean, the vineyard where it's now literally was all just big one open field, so it was the whole estate establishment. So it's putting in fences, tree lines, cultivating everything. So it was it was pretty exciting. It was actually, mm. yeah, and that was yeah. cool. And now there wasn't really many other people doing what mum and dad were doing to the standard that they were. There was only us and probably one other vineyard that was specialising 100% in sparkling wine and with the intention of it to be a professional winery, sort of like a, like champagne mm. houses are. So it did feel exciting to be part of something even in a small way back yeah. then. But, yeah, no, it was cool. Yeah, it must have done. And meanwhile, tomorrow you were busily working in finance. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the fun girl <laughs> in the city. <laughs> there needs to be one in the family. Um, so I, I've, I've heard you describe it before as a bit of a no-brainer in the end when you did join the family business. But talk us through sort of how that, how that happened. Presumably at the start, that wasn't on your radar at all. I think just to put in perspective, uh, vineyards take you know, three years to establish. So for for three years, you're putting, you know, money into and maintaining and managing a vineyard that's not producing anything. Um, And then likewise, the wine side of it will take another three years from that first harvest to to then get to a marketable state. So, you know, you've got six years of investment into uh, work in progress, basically. So our first proper Ridgeview Vintage would have been 1907, would it? Or 98? Uh, 98. 98. So really, it wasn't really until 2000 uh, onwards that we started to win lots of awards and accolades. And Still then, feels pretty quick. Yeah. <laughs> pretty quick, doesn't it, after the first... Yeah, um, and, uh, yeah so, and, and at the time I was still sort of doing some of my qualifications and things like that, so I finished those. And it, it was 2004, I think. I joined in 2004 as general manager, and I think it was around then when mum and dad went to South Africa um, to see... What, how you know, and did a bit of a busman's tour around there in terms of see what the the vineyards and the wineries were up to over there, um, and just saw the opportunity really to for for what we could possibly do back at uh, Ridgeview, and we as a family then agreed to expand the business, get some investment, find some more land for or growers. This is when we started to move into these sort of working with partner growers. Um, so we thought, our, so our business model at the time was to invest in the winemaking and the winery and then ask, you know, and work with other partners with land to to, to grow the grapes for us. It's and that's fine. where we moved into it, yeah. So that was a real sea change, was it then? The sort of just before the 10-year mark of the business? Yeah. Adjusting? Absolutely, yeah. Gear. Yeah. So was it only when they came back from South Africa that you really wanted, that they realised they wanted to take up upper gear and have you join? I think it was that was a quite a critical part of the decision making because it was we were doing well and we were we were um winning awards but I think in order to move it forward it was a family decision at the end of the day and I think the enthusiasm that they came back from and I think timing's everything isn't mm. it in terms of where you are in your career mm. and what you're doing everything just slotted into place at that time uh, and it was really exciting um, and we and I think we could all see and we're all bought into it because we're all crazy so that's fine <laughs> well, I was going to ask it was a difficult decision and there were difficult discussions but by the sounds of it you've been really lucky I'm sure there was probably a, bo- a bottle of wine opened and uh, um, and a few few chats and it was just yeah why not let's just do it um, so yeah no it was it was great and I think at that time Mardi was Mardi back with you then as well because you met Mardi over in so Mardi came in Brown Brothers didn't so she you? we I worked for them in 
99. That's right. So she and then she came over in the end of 99, beginning of 2000. So that's my brother's now wife, Mardi, who's worked with us since 99. Mm. I am. Um, I'm really fascinated by that, by, sort of by the whole thing, the, the whole family business, because you know you, you do hear about family businesses, obviously, but I'm not sure it's very common to have quite so many family members working <laughs> so closely together for su- over such a long period of time. Yeah, um, no, it's not. And I think I, so many people who are going to me, how on earth do you do? I like, you must have the same. Like, how do you work with your family? You're, you're great. But we we just do, and I think we we all work. Um, I think we all just have very different uh, skill sets, which is really important. We're not all, um, yeah. and and we're all comfortable with with um, where what we're doing. I, I think you know. I think we get on really well. Good communication always the the most important Essential. thing. <laughs> um, and my husband joined in the business in two thousand and eleven. Actually, coming from a completely different background too. So. Yeah, we are, we're all in. In fact, to be fair, sometimes it's easier that you're all in because you're all just talking about the same thing all the time. <laughs> rather than, someone rather than half out. of you, or, you know, two-thirds of you talking about the same thing all the time and then the, and the other one just going, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> Actually, that's true. Before Lardy, so before Tam's husband joined, it was really difficult, family lunches yeah. and dinners, because... That's all. That's it. Was such so passionate. That's all we wanted to talk about. Mm. Poor Lardy was <laughs> sat there like, oh well, I might also go and do the washing up. <laughs> Can I talk about my day? <laughs> Joined just to have something to say. Yeah. So it's true, actually. But we, it's. I think it because it is a passion yeah. for all of us that, and as Tam says, the skill sets are so different. Like we, I mean, a hundred percent. We Ridgeview would not be where it is now without Tam's guidance. Really, I don't oh, think. Thanks. But I'd. <laughs> I could care less about business. I love making wine. Marty loves selling wine and marketing wine, but neither of us could do the job that Tam does. And that's, you know, that's a given, isn't it? And I think that's important that with really without Tam's guidance, I think that's been critical to the expansion of the business, really. That's very kind of you, but you can't expand a business without great wine, hey? <laughs> no. That's about to say, you're slipping him a £50 note. So there we go. <laughs> and that, I suppose you must, you must each, and I think... The conversation you've just had demonstrates that have a lot of sort of respect and give a lot of credit to each everyone's area of expertise you know there are decisions which will be yours tomorrow's there'll be decisions which will be simon's and and there'll be joint decisions but where you've each got a view you know particular view to put forward is that yeah no absolutely i mean i you know we we would certainly we we talk about all of the big decisions in the business together so that's you know we have a, a sort of a family we do it in three I suppose two stages. we have the board and then we have the family and um, so both of those are sort of included in in those discussions so but ultimately you know you know the winemaking decisions have to come down to Simon's expertise in certain areas likewise some of the business finance decisions I want to explain them so everyone understands what we're doing so that it's not I'm just suddenly going off and doing something random um, and the benefit to the business and the benefit to people likewise with the winemaking there is that accountability of the decision making but ultimately we we totally respect each other's decisions in those areas but you always need someone to bounce that off because mm. um, you know you don't want to make decisions in isolation or without and that's quite, it's quite nice having family members there because they're brutally honest with yes. us <laughs> yeah <laughs> How did, can I just ask on that? How did you come up with the process? Is it organic, or did you all sit down and decide, okay, this is how every decision will be made? Um, That's a good question, actually. 
I suppose it's it's moved over time. So the business has started, you know, with three or four people working in it to, to today we've got 40 employees plus at harvest time, we, we had another 20 or 30 people in, don't we? So the way in which the communication channels and the decision making has had to change. So it's become less informal, more formal. Um, we certainly have, you know, we've, we've created a senior management team as well as the family. So we've got just more structured in those things. Mm. And, and, you know, we were talking about this on the train up here is that you, you start with having a lots of different things doing and then you gradually become an expert in certain fields and you... And at that point, you have to let things go and someone mm. else has to go mm. and take it on. And that actually can be really hard. And we were talking about that with certain of the splitting up of some of the of the production elements is that one side went somewhere, Simon, with the winemaking, obviously, with his expertise in that area. But it takes you sometimes takes you a bit of time to realise actually that is the best thing to do because someone else can have 100 percent focus on it. So we've all been mm. through that journey. So we've all got great experience and everything. But we've had to. Learn delegate let go, and let go of certain things as, as as the business has grown and yeah. um and that that way and from that then you need to have that better communication at the top because you don't see everything that's happening all the time yeah and yeah. trust as well and trust you? yeah and it is you do you have to really trust that it's the right decision yeah i think also the fact that your family is that when there are really fundamental decisions that need to be made because your family you can be really honest as tam was saying but also that means that you can get to a decision so much quicker than having to go through all the board and then all the senior management team. And so if we, as a family, ultimately it's our company, so if we think that is the right decision to do, we'll go, right, this is what's happening, presented to the boards if we have to. You know, but that decision's really been made, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Whereas if, you know, more traditional company, there's so many channels and yeah. all the right people that need to be considered and consulted. Mm. So it's... Not that we're a dictatorship. But no, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's we're responsible for the success of the business. So, and if we think that's the right thing to do, then yeah, we can do that. Yeah, and I think a lot of the time it's timing, isn't it? You know, certain decisions are the right time to make those decisions. Others, if they're not, if you not haven't got a hundred percent behind it, you have to leave those for another day, don't you? Yes. Those, that's that's important. Have there been decisions like that where you've had to really make sure that everyone's on yeah. the same page and yeah. I mean difficult decisions where you haven't all agreed yeah definitely yeah. Um, and um, not, not sort of um, business fa failure decisions or anything like that but certain sure. directions of travel certain decisions in terms of customer base you know and those sorts mm. of uh, elements in terms of taking on new customers or working with certain people or those things if we're not all behind it um, as much as you know sometimes if you're really behind it it's hard you just let it you just say okay well it's not for now and then you might mm. revisit it in, in a year's time and stuff like that. I, you know, I think it's rarely that we have made fundamental disagreements. I can't remember a fundamental disagreement. No, there was one was when we had an introduction of an accreditation because of supplying national distributors like Waitrose. And there was a massive sea change within the business, or there the needed to be a big change within the business. And for that to work, everybody had to be on board. Mm. And at that point... There was still that very romantic artisan sort of feel to, especially the winemaking side of it, and so we, not that as a family we didn't really fall, we didn't fall out at all. We this is how this is what we needed to do to be able to keep these customers, mm. but within the team, and I think across the business, if you weren't on board with it, it was such a big seat. You know, it was going from real adjustment to yeah, a more process sort of. That was really the big yeah. for me. That was one of our biggest sea changes. Is that the people that. Well, you know, if you're not on board, you're going to really struggle. So people had to leave, or 
you know, they went on to stake to smaller vineyards mm. and wineries so they could carry on that sort of artisan yeah. side to it. And I think it took a while to get everybody across the business on board, didn't it? Yeah, those that that was yeah a big change for the business. Yeah, and and it's part of that growing up and yeah. becoming more professional and working yeah. with those big clients that mm. you want to work with. There are certain hoops you then have yeah. to jump through, and yeah, yeah. Tricky. That's actually that's something as a firm, as a law firm, we are kind of in a similar stage. We yeah. we we've, we're founded in 1998, and I've been with the company since 2009, and that's definitely happened over the last decade. That sort of transition. Mm. Um, but you don't want to lose the ethos and the absolutely. feel of the business either. Absolutely. Um, and so you, it is a, it's a tricky um, path to navigate to make sure that, you know, you, you tick the boxes for the, sort of the family ethos and, mm. and the fun of working yeah. where we are, the good parts, but um, um, but you have sort to Sort of realising your full potential. Yeah. 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 Has it ever this just occurred to me while we've been talking? Um, you know, one of the... There are obviously loads of strengths to family business in terms of the candor you can talk to each other with has it ever been an issue in terms of having members of staff who you really value and think they've got great skills but who maybe feel like they don't have there's a sort of a a limit to the levels they can go to in the company because of not being a member of the family is that something that's ever I I think I think there there is definitely that I think in family businesses that is a a, an issue certainly um and it's it's a one that you constantly have to have a good handle on I think and I'm doing quite a bit of work on them at that at the moment in terms of the future structures and where those progression areas mm. are to the fact you know that really means that the family have to give up stuff um, yeah and we're all prepared for that now we know we know that in order for the business because the next generation for us are, are, t- are just too young to, to so that we have a gap like yeah. most family businesses now have that sort of gap between the current ownership and and the kids who are yeah. you know because we're all having our children much later now yeah as we did so you, you you have to be realistic there is a gap to fill and those people need to come in at a senior level and be able to take progress and progress yeah. and have that succession because you can't re- and you shouldn't neither should you rely upon certainly my 16 or 17 year old <laughs> <laughs> thinking that they're going to come in in a few years time and run the business and, and we all want to have some time out as well you know I don't want to be working till I'm 75 <laughs> you know I, I want to I and want then to have be... your children turn around no. and say, actually it's not for me mum no. <laughs> you know and I think you know also you can't run a business you know you, you're you know, I get you get a bit old and set in your ways. <laughs> Don't you get a bit old? I mean, you need you need young, dynamic ideas coming into the business. Mm. Otherwise, you'll you know we we'll do things that we've done in the past all the time. You know what I mean? We need that challenge in that. Definitely. I don't know how you feel, but that's what I think. No, I mean it's you can see that in the vineyard and the winery. You've got younger guys coming on board. You know, they're full of ambition, full of research. You know, they're they and they and they're happy. And I think we created an open enough environment. That they're happy to challenge us, you know. So like, mm. well, why? Why is it? Why do you do that? Why do you think that's the most efficient way? So that you have to question why you do something, and it's, so it's good. I think it's good to push. Those and that's views. so valuable, isn't it? It's Definitely. essential because otherwise yeah. you operate in a bit of a vacuum, and yeah, it's sort of it's um it's an mm. echo chamber, isn't it? Mm. Absolutely, and I think because we we're so close to Plumpton College, and we've always taken on students. We've always got that freshness and everybody's got new ideas you know some might work some might not work and it's mm. and we're seeing that now with the business side as well the sort of people coming up and you know that freshness it's just it's uh infectious as well isn't yeah. it yeah. like it's everybody the, feeds off it like you need to move from generalism to to expertise mm. when you get bigger as well so having people with you're bringing coming from other outside of the organization in is really really important with working 
in, in bigger organisations particularly when yeah. you're trying to grow is really helpful because yeah. they come from that background. Yeah, no, absolutely. Did you see that when you handed over or the business was handed over to you from your parents? Do you think there was a, a bit of a change there and you wanted to take things in different directions or um, was it quite smooth? It was well. Well, it was relatively quick because poor my poor, poor dad passed away quite quickly. <laughs> so oh, it's all right. Funny. <laughs> I know I shouldn't be laughing, but it was. So I, you know, it'd be nice to. It's always nice to think, isn't it? You get a planned handover. I mean, it was. It was a plan, but it suddenly, you know, my dad got quite ill quite quickly, and so um, it was a fairly quick. So it's accelerated. What accelerated what might have been a, 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 a sort of a more leisurely handover. Um, but it's hard to tell, isn't it? I think in a way that did make us just crack on. Um, there have been changes, but I'm not sure whether that's because of it's probably because the business has changed and, and mm. we we you know we have a five year business plan. So when Dad passed away, we had the five year business plan and we made that work, didn't we? Yeah. So it's only recently, I suppose, in the next for the next five years is this is our business mm. plan now for the next five years and so really we're 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 breaking the ground now a little bit more I think out completely outside of 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 those thoughts yeah I think that's fair enough um yeah. and you know Simon's winning massive awards uh, for, for the wines he's made now on his own which mm. is really fantastic and not surprising I would say <laughs> but again that's just us coming back and we're you know, introducing new blends, you know, the oak blend and things like that, which is all down to Simon and, uh, you know, in the business as well, how we operate and run the business. We're looking for to go for a B Corp accreditation at the moment. Right. And again, oh. those are passions mm. that we share, but very much I share, you know, I really, I really hold dear is that we've got to be looking at the sustainability side of the yeah. business and, and looking after our people. Yeah. Um, it's really, really important to me, very high on my agenda. So, those sorts of things you can start to stamp your authority on, can't you? And do those things that you, you know that are important to you personally as well as for the business. Yeah, that having that sort of five-year business plan, that in a way that's probably quite nice. I suppose having a kind of blueprint to start off with, and then a few years of yeah, yeah sort of trying to stick with that, and then having a chance with the sort of a few years' experience of actually running the business to then think right, what's next for us? Yeah, no, exactly. And um, you know, we were all involved in those five-year plan so it was just nice to be able to finish it off wasn't it and mm. go thanks dad we've done it we're, we'll move on we'll move the business on again so that was that was really nice that was the build of which we built a very big winery or uh, production facility it finished it in 2019 and that was pretty much the end of that business plan and then obviously we had the pandemic and things like that which mm. meant we had to tear up all the business plans and <laughs> start again and um uh, and we managed we made it through the pandemic really quite well didn't we well, we're not through it yet. We nearly are. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking positively. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking positively. The best thing is that could have been said at any point in yeah. the last 18 months, yeah. I feel. No, no. I'm positive now. Mm. Uh, it's, it's also yeah, it's a double, double whammy, isn't it? Pandemic plus Brexit. Yeah. You know, in terms of They couldn't have planned Brexit better, could they? <laughs> no, no one really planned knows now Brexit. which is which. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm sure there's a conspiracy theory tucked in there somewhere. <laughs> It's been quite interesting, actually. We've seen a couple of French vineyards trying to buy up land, um, particularly in the southeast. I don't know if you're feeling under pressure at all from people coming over from the continent, guarding against climate change, perhaps. I think the interest that's coming from Champagne is, at the moment, is in quite a compliment to our industry, I think, mm. that they can see the potential here that's, you know, with climate change, you know, harvests are getting so early in Champagne and they're having to pick so much earlier than they'd want to. So... But I think it's what they do with that 
release of those wines and where they market them and at what price point and that will be interesting I think mm. I think the the names so far so Tassinger and Pomeroy are the two that have really got wine or, or close to having wine out and they don't seem to be too disruptive of the market they're trying to maintain the quality and price points so um, it does endorse what you're doing which is quite nice when you've mm. got that, yes that yeah. sort of caliber of of um, brand investing in in the region I think there will be a lot of consolidation in the industry because there is an awful lot of mid-size vineyards and wineries at the moment who probably planted in the last 10 or 15 years who are now bringing wines to market and that's when it starts to all get a bit difficult yeah quite a kind of crowded space yeah and and creating a brand and investing in the brand and getting shelf space etc is becoming you know it, mm. it it's more competitive and uh, and you need to invest quite a lot of money into into that and some some pockets are deeper than others um so i think it's going to be quite an interesting sort of 10 years and there is there is also a lot of i interest in buying up wineries from outside at the moment so from sort of bigger wine companies who have investments in various other mm. uh, regions looking now in, into the UK to investing in an operating vineyard so there's much more of that going on mm. than there ever has been. It can be so easy can't it just to sort of day-to-day carry on you know and, mm. and struggle with all the challenges of running a business and family and keeping afloat there's not much time to stop and think what are we doing and why yeah yeah but that's really important yeah, isn't it absolutely so <laughs> otherwise suddenly you find yourself way off yeah way off peace yeah. basically yeah. and particularly as you're growing and buying grapes from all sorts of different places as well i mean what would you what's your split at the moment oh it's tight i mean so we have um 16 acres of ridgey vines and then we we source fruit from 125 acres all over the south of england so some of those will be 100 percent contract growers so partners that we work with but they just everything they grow they sell to us some will be um they'll grow grapes we'll make wine some wine for them from those grapes and then we'll buy the rest and then others will be 100 percent contracts whatever they grow we'll make wine for them and give it back to them service yeah so it's everything in between everything and in between and it's but it's harvest like this this year really showed the value of having vineyards over such a wide area because mm-hmm. it's it, harvest was so regional this year mm-hmm. wasn't it and also that we work we call them our partners and for me that's really important because in any form of agriculture there's lots of challenges throughout the season and you have to be able to be honest with your growers in the same way they have to be honest with you as the client that there are difficult decisions to be made and if you if you don't have that good relationship it can make it really awkward mm-hmm. and really uncomfortable mm-hmm. yeah so and you need transparency as well, I suppose. In that Absolutely, don't you? yeah. I mean, we've. I think that's something that we've got better at is being transparent. And I don't know, I, you know, there's no secrets to what mm. we do. No. So it's important to be really open, isn't it? I think yeah. anyway. Do you think these growers are going to really struggle with the changes in agriculture, loss of subsidies? No, I think. Well, especially on new growers, I think one of the reasons they've diversified into grapes is it is a very cash-heavy crop. Once you've got over that initial investment of setting up the vineyard um, compared to apples or rapeseed or wheat. So I think they're going to be, I think they should be okay. You know, that's the reason why they've got Mm. into grape growing. And then I think, again, we keep going back to calling them partners, but the contracts we have for them reflect something for both the growers and for us so that 
in really tough years, they they'll benefit, and in really bumpy years, we benefit. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everybody's in there. Even if it's whether it's a three-year or five-year or ten-year contract, you know, it's irrelevant. Really, most of our growers are in it for the long haul. You know, mm. so it's mm. it really is a partnership, and some of them have become good friends. Actually, you know, we've been invited to their weddings and just you know their families you know when babies are arrived so you know it's it's a good relationship with some of them isn't it yeah very absolutely yeah. i guess you're pretty you know you're yeah if, if it works well you're very very closely linked to each other aren't you and particularly partners who start off you know you're you're their first foray into mm. vine growing well that's quite a scary step i would have thought you know three-year crop yeah, I think actually that's another good thing about working with farmers that are diversifying because it's not such a culture shock. We've got, actually we had a grower this year, it's his first ever harvest, and this is his first foray into um, agriculture. Did he have a film company? Oh, wow. Something like that, Something. Yeah. Anyway, so he's like never, ever done anything to do with agriculture. Oh. And it was, so we've sort of, Matt and I have been talking to him throughout the season and it obviously gets more and more regular as we got close to harvest. And it was a challenging harvest, especially in Sussex. And if you're not used to this, it's difficult to read what's going to happen in the season. And he definitely got more and more despondent. And I felt during harvest that I was providing a self-help tutorial. He would phone me in the evening with all his woes of the day and I had to spend half an hour building him back up for the next day. You're like, well, is this what I signed up for? But, um, but you know, again, because such, he's such a lovely person, mm. you, you want him to be... You want that passion to keep on. So it was yeah. like, but well, that was quite funny. That was Hang in there. 20 yeah. years, you'll be, you'll yeah, be exactly. fine. Yeah. Taking a step back to when the business was in its early days and English sparkling wine was much less well-known of a vintage um, <laughs> than it is now. How was it sort of for your parents and then for you both getting involved in terms of, you know, wine market being a very established area? How was that? And what, you know, were there were there any particular techniques or other than sort of winning awards which you mentioned I mean I know happened pretty early on and has continued to happen was that the focus let's just make this really really well or I suppose the establishment of of the vineyard the basis of it being just sparkling wine traditional method sparkling and the varietals grapes that we're planting Chardonnay Pinot Pinot Noir and Pinot Monia were guiding you in a certain style and um, quality so it was always a quality focused Mm. product that we were going to make and the um, I suppose the the idea was always to be competing at the champagne level not at the sort of carver prosecco level in terms of the market and um, trade interesting I think it was you either had people coming knocking at your door like we did like the Lathwaite family we're knocking on the door from our first venture wanting to buy everything Versus, you know, uh, just not wanting to even taste or consider. Um, So you had quite polar Mm. opposite experiences. The trade obviously being much more used to new um, and understanding of the wine production and those sorts of things were probably more open. Mm -hmm. Uh, Consumers have taken a lot, lot longer to to bring along uh, other than you would say perhaps your wine enthusiasts Mm. and those sorts of things who are very, or English enthusiasts. Yeah. Um, and one of the things, the, the the key issues we had at the very early days was uh, English wine was mainly still wines, not not great, but um, inconsistent in terms of volume. So mm. one year they'd and quality. So uh, one year, a, you know, a wine trader would buy a particular wine, it would be great. The next year, it either wouldn't be available or it would be 
not, not very so good. good. <laughs> Whereas with the sparkling wine, and the reason for you know the cool climate making being in the cool climate we are making the traditional method of sparkling wine is that you sort of get rid of that inconsistency inconsistency of quality and quantity because you have three years usually at any one time in your cellar with which mm. to manage the volumes with. So uh, we could, you know, it took a while to convince. And I would say probably the first 10 years of sales was convincing people to even try object right. <laughs> objectively <laughs> while all the time. Um, and uh, keeping England off the label. We, we, oh, really? Yeah, that was we, really key. Yeah, we, didn't, <clears throat> we didn't put England on the label. We made the labelling look like it was a French or, or you could even, uh, Ridgeview's quite a south african or australian, australian new, type, world, anyway. new world type name so it was kind of we, we deliberately made the labeling quite confusing so people didn't really know where the wine was from yeah and you usually had to mention the fact that it was english after they tasted it because if you did it before they would turn their nose up and go it's disgusting yeah. or taste it um, with that in mind yeah and, and mm. um so you had to be quite clever and we did an awful lot of blind tastings at the vineyard at the beginning with um, champagnes versus champagne, so just blind tasted right. everything, um, and that was really effective because nine times out of ten the, the English was as good at one that sort of blind tasting, didn't it? Because it you know it was it was better once you stripped away all of your visual cues, mm. as it were, or at least as good. But then I suppose the last ten years has been almost the demand has gone through the roof, mm. um, and we've always had this thing is that will supply exceed demand at some point there's been a, a sort of a concern in the industry with all the planting and the growth yeah. and everything else at some point we can have a glut of wine no one's going to want to buy it but that touch wood has not happened yeah. yet but um i think because there's still a lot of space there's a lot of restaurants a lot of supermarkets a lot of uh, resellers who don't stock english wine at the moment because mm. the volume isn't big enough yeah so yeah and and i suppose it, you know taps into a growing desire the sort of buy local Absolutely, idea. yeah, it's um, been really, really important. Um, but people only buy local if there's a quality, yes, product available. Product, yeah. yeah. But I think also there's the catalyst as an industry was wine. Most wine competitions you'll have a sparkling wine category and a champagne category, and um, Decanter, which is arguably the biggest red wine publication in the world, is back then was the only competition that had a sparkling wine category, so champagne and all sparkling wine all together. And up until 2010, it had always been won by a champagne house. Mm. And we, so we won in 2010. And it was, wow. I think that as an industry. That well, was quite seismic. Oh, for mm. Ridgeview, it was amazing. But I think for our, I think for our industry, which was at, back then was still quite small enough that it was reflective for all of us, mm. not just for Ridgeview, mm. that everybody kind of thought this is actually quite a big deal. We need to make it. You can capitalise on this, yeah. And so on an international basis, people suddenly were interested and were picking up English wines. But also I think as an industry, it was kind of like suddenly the world wine world was looking at the English wine industry. And I think people thought, do you know what? We've got to step our game up. We've got to consistently be producing international quality wine. But also the winery and the business around it has to be run professionally. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't have business plans on bits of paper that are in a shoebox and you can't yeah. have recipes for wine, you know, so... Yeah. You've, you've got to know how much you can guarantee yeah. to produce and, mm. yeah. I think it's... I think... So that was... Like, for, as an industry, that was quite a pivotal point, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. What do you see as coming up next as the next big pivotal moment? I don't know, that's a good question. I think sustainability as an industry has become 
really important to us. So at the moment, there's a lot of talk about vineyards and wineries becoming net zero within by 2030, which as as farming goes, is actually quite easy to, to do that. But as a winery, that's obviously not very easy because mm. glass is such an unsustainable mm. format. But um, I think so, you know, our governing body is wines of Great Britain. And I think having, you know, 75% of all the members joined up to the sustainability scheme, have that accreditation just shows the direction that as an industry mm. we want to be going in. Mm. Um, and we've been quite keen in that so far so i think that's yeah i think, think so? yeah i think that's that's definitely one we should we should be leading in that area because we're new and we can and so we should set, start with that in mind and, and be the first there not not yeah. wait for everyone else and also i think the other thing is exports for us i think is going to be um is finding the investment uh, as an industry to to really break into some of those key export markets because that's when you start to really become a global, in, mm. you know, a global product. wine producer yeah. and um, wine producing nat- nation, and again, that that will become from being more professional um, and people investing and seeing seeing the benefit of collaborating on that. And we need to collaborate to do that. Yeah, as an industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we are nearing the end of our session, so I've just got one one final question, if that's all right. So, knowing what you both know now, what would you each do? again in the same way and what would you avoid or do differently mm, <laughs> <laughs> uh, for, well from a winemaking point of view I would definitely go the route that we decided to from a quality sparkling wine point of view we we talk about going still wine every now and then and it's just the consistency is never something I would want Ridgefield to put its name to I would never change that this is a family business. Mm. I would never change that because I think that's fundamentally why we've been so successful in terms of what we're doing without perhaps the bucket full of cash that that, mm. that sometimes can come into the industry that um, we have been completely doggedly determined <laughs> and done and, and, and really, you know, worked worked extremely hard to get to the business where, where it is yeah. today. And, and, and that to me is, I, I think, is fundamentally because the family ethos and the family working supporting each other all together to get to that point um and, and the ridgeview family and too. the, the ridgeview the wider ridgeview family definitely coming into that um i don't know i can't you know maybe i wish it maybe she would have just started it 10 years previously i don't know might be nice yeah. <laughs> yeah. then yeah. you wouldn't have had your wonderful finance years yeah so. that's true <laughs> and my wonderful time in, in finance yeah. <laughs> Everything happens for a reason. Mm. Um, so that's that's all we've got time for today. So Tamara and Simon Roberts, thank you so very much for joining us. Um, thanks also to Adina Glynn, to our producer Sophie Black. Um, Generation Now was brought to you by Forsters. To find out more about us, go to forsters.co.uk. And thank you very much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>